0: Good morning, saints. It's such a joy to sing of our holy God. What a privilege it is that we get to to worship this holy God. And that is only possible because this holy God sent His Son, His only begotten Son, to reconcile unholy people To himself through faith in that Son. It is in Christ alone that we can come and behold this holy God and offer worship that is actually pleasing to this God. And God sent his holy Son into a sin infested, fallen world, a world that came under a curse when the first man, Adam, did not regard God as holy. Instead, he chose to transgress against God's command. Adam was free to eat from many trees, but forbidden to eat from one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we see the effects of that fall when we reflect on the history of this world. History is filled with conflict and war. Even now, our world is filled with conflict and war. Enmity exists between people. People want to inflict harm on one another. And that doesn't surprise us when we understand what the Bible tells us about this world and the condition of man. But while we expect in a fallen world that there will be people at enmity toward one another, there is an elevated sense of violation that strikes us when we hear of a betrayal. Someone... Supposed to be an ally, a friend, not a known to be one known to be an enemy. And that person gains trust in that friendship and then uses that trust to take advantage of that person. The one betrayed has perhaps been an exceptionally faithful friend. And in return for their friendship, they are treated like an enemy, they are hurt. Cheated, sold out, left to the vultures. That is what they get in return for the loving care that they have shown. We understand betrayal to be an exceptionally sinister violation. And the greater the degree of the love that's been shown by the betrayed person to the benefit of the betrayer, the more reprehensible and disgusting, we find the violation of that betrayal to be. Our text this morning brings into focus the most heinous betrayal of all, the betrayal of the Savior. We return to John 13, and we're looking at verses 18 through 30 this morning. I'll read our text for us, beginning in verse 18 of John 13. I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen. But it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. From now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, He who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. There was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. So Simon Peter gestured to him and said to him, tell us who it is of whom he is speaking. He, leaning back thus on Jesus' bosom, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus then answered, that is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. After the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Therefore, Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. Now, no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. For some were supposing because Judas had the money box that Jesus was saying to him, buy the things that we have need of for the feast, or else that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately, and it was night. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can offer acceptable worship to you because of the mediation of your Son and that we can boldly approach your throne of grace because of him. As we come to this passage, we ask that you would help us to see the majesty of Christ in it. We ask that you would deepen our trust in Christ through it and may our hearts be fueled to worshipful obedience toward him. As you said of the transfiguration this is my Son. Listen to Him. May we listen to Him. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We've noted previously that this is the night before the crucifixion. Jesus and His disciples are sharing a Passover meal together in the upper room. And Jesus had washed His disciples' feet which modeled for them how they ought to humbly serve one another in love. Jesus was addressing a problem within the heart of the disciples, a desire for greatness, desire to rise above the others. And that is ultimately a deeply self-serving desire. That self-serving desire would have to die if they were to serve one another in love. Being consumed by a self-serving desire is a threat that we all face, not just the disciples there. And we'll see in our passage today that the disciples will find out this evening that there's one from among them who is going to be completely consumed by self-serving desire. This one will be completely consumed by a love for self and greed And it will lead to his destruction. But not before he would commit the most heinous betrayal ever on his way down. He was going to betray the sinless Savior in exchange for 30 pieces of silver. As we walk through this passage, we're going to track with the sequence of how it unfolds. From Jesus bringing up the topic of the betrayal with the disciples all the way to Judas departing from the group to carry out this betrayal. And what I want you to see is that Jesus is in control the whole way through. None of this catches him by surprise. He wants his disciples to be able to reflect on what happens here later and to know that Jesus was showing himself to be exactly who he says he is. He is the Son of God incarnate. He wants their faith to be strengthened as a result of what unfolds here. It's going to shake them a bit, but ultimately he's going to use this to strengthen their faith. And so my desire for you is that your faith in him will be strengthened as you see the Lord in action in these verses before us this morning. First, we see that Jesus prepares his disciples for his betrayal. Verses 18 through 20. Jesus prepares his disciples for his betrayal. Picking up in verse 18. I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, but it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. From now on I am telling you before it comes to pass... So that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. Jesus is preparing his disciples for the betrayal that is coming soon. And he prepares them in a few ways here. He does so first by describing the betrayal as a fulfillment of Scripture. verse 18, he speaks of the promise of the blessing in verse 17 being for almost all of the disciples. But he had not spoken this promise for all of them. There is one to whom that promise in verse 17 will not apply. One who was selected for a different purpose than the others. This one was selected in order that a particular scripture would be fulfilled the scripture is psalm 41 verse 9 it's a psalm of david and david is most likely referring to a man named ahithophel here ahithophel was a trusted counselor to king david second samuel 16 verse 23 says the advice of ahithophel which he gave in those days was as if one inquired of the word of God. So was all the advice of Ahithophel regarded by both David and Absalom. He had been David's trusted counselor. And when David's son Absalom moved to usurp the throne from his father, Ahithophel aided him. He who had eaten David's bread had lifted his heel against David. He had turned on David, the one who had eaten at David's table as a trusted counselor and ally. He's now raising his foot like a horse to violently strike David by aiding his son to usurp him. Psalm 55 verses 12-14 is another place where David's most likely reflecting on this betrayal by Ahithophel. Says, for it is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me, who has exalted himself against me, then I could hide myself from him. But it is you, a man my equal, my companion, and my familiar friend. We who had sweet fellowship together walked in the house of God in the throng. This incident with David and Ahithophel was a foreshadowing of what would happen to the greater David, the Lord Jesus Christ, his betrayal by Judas. Another interesting detail that happened with Ahithophel is that he ended up hanging himself in the end. That is precisely the same end that Judas would come to. What was foreshadowed in David's life was fulfilled in the life of the greater David, the Messiah. So Jesus first prepares his disciples for his betrayal by describing it as a fulfillment of Scripture, helping them to see that this was pointed forward to long, long ago in the Word of God. Another way that he prepares them is by foretelling of it right before it happens, bringing it up, saying it's going to happen right before it happens. Look at verse 19. From now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. He's going to call it before it happens. And he says he's doing that precisely so that when they look back on it later, they will realize that he was showing himself to be exactly who's been saying that he is. He's showing them in the words of Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Who else can declare the end from the beginning but God? Look again at John 13 verse 19, he says again, From now on I am telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur you may believe that I am he. There is no he in the original Greek. It just says, so that you may believe that I am. I am is God's covenant name that he revealed to Moses in the burning bush. In John 8, Jesus had said to a crowd of Jews, before Abraham was, I am. He was calling himself I am there as well. And the people wanted to stone him for it because they knew that he was calling himself God. Jesus is precise in what he's doing here in John 13 with his disciples. He wants it to be clear that the betrayal did not catch him by surprise at all. He had known that it was coming the whole time. I mean, how easy would it be for the disciples to think that the betrayer had gotten the upper hand over Jesus? That somehow he didn't see this coming and Judas was prevailing. They needed to know that Jesus already knew it was coming. And the so that in verse 19 tells us why. It tells us the purpose of why he is telling them these things before they happen. It is so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am. He does it so that their faith in him will be solidified and strengthened by what happens, rather than their faith being undermined by what unfolds. By foretelling of it, Jesus essentially turns the betrayal into a proof that he is who he says he is. He causes the occurrence of the betrayal to function as a faith builder rather than a faith crusher. A third way that Jesus prepares his disciples for the betrayal is by assuring them that his mission and their mission remain intact. Verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me. And he who receives me, receives him who sent me. It's another truly, truly statement like we saw last time in verse 16. And Jesus is actually bringing forward the the sender and and one sent language from verse 16. Brings it back here. that The Father had sent the Son. And the Son is going to send out the disciples. They will be ambassadors of the Father and the Son. They will have a message from the Father and the Son to deliver to people in the world. The betrayal was in no way going to undermine the mission for which the Father had sent the Son, nor would it undermine the mission for which Jesus was going to send out the disciples into the world after his ascension to carry forth the message. in everyone who would receive that message would be receiving the Father and the Son. They were to continue the proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom which Jesus had been preaching. And the betrayal was going to be instrumental in bringing about the crucifixion and the atonement of sin at the heart of that gospel message. Now the scripture warns that there will be Mockers of God. Second Peter 3 says there will be mockers in the last days saying, where is the promise of his coming? People who try to undermine what God has said in Scripture. People who want to poke holes in your faith. But look at what Jesus did for his disciples here. He showed them that a prophecy of Scripture was being fulfilled, that what the Scripture says comes to pass. He foretold what was going to happen right before it, so that they would believe that He is, I am. And He reminded them to stay focused on the mission for which He had been sent by His Father and the mission for which He would be sending them out as ambassadors for Him and the Father. And so we can learn from this that we need to study the Word so that we can see prophecies and fulfillments and teaching and how the Bible fits together in a perfect, harmonious revelation of God. People who mock the Word mishandle the Word. Second Corinthians 4.4 4 tells us that the God of this world has blinded their eyes. This, the God of this world being a false God that the world worships might look at something like this betrayal and point out, look at the betrayer getting the upper hand. But Jesus is instilling in the disciples a clarity about what's happening. A clarity that we also need when we have perhaps struggle with our own doubts and questions or someone else raises questions to undermine our trust in the Word. If we're not studying in the Word, steeped in the Word, we make ourselves susceptible to people bringing about doubt and confusion, twisting Scripture, mocking it, wanting to poke holes in your faith. So know the Scripture, understand what the Scripture has said and what has been fulfilled. Also, the Scripture reveals to us, Jesus shows us that He is who He says He is, that He is I am, that He is God. As we continue to immerse ourselves in Scripture's testimony of Christ, it will serve to strengthen our faith in Him. We need the Word for our faith to be built up and strengthened in Christ. And we need to stay focused on our mission as we walk in this world. Again, as there are mockers, we don't need to get distracted by those who mock. We need to preach the gospel to them and to others And to pray for God to open their eyes that they may be saved. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. And so we must focus on the proclamation of it. We've been given a great commission to make disciples among the nations. And nothing is going to thwart the plans of God concerning that mission. It remains intact and the disciples needed to know nothing is changing about what I've been telling you of this mission. It remains intact. It will be fulfilled. Even in the face of all sorts of assaults against it, it will prevail. So we must stay focused on this mission that we've been given by Christ. The disciples needed to understand these things to be prepared for the betrayal that was coming. Well, Jesus first prepares his disciples for his betrayal, gets them ready for this news. And second, Jesus reveals that the betrayer is among the disciples. Verses 21 through 26, Jesus reveals that the betrayer is among the disciples. He was preparing them for the betrayal. Now he's going to explicitly reveal the news of the betrayal to them, and that the betrayer specifically is from among them. Verse 21, when Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, that one of you will betray me. Now, all the way back in John 6, verse 70, Jesus had said, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? And John's commentary after that in verse 71 says, Now he meant Judas the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. John is reflecting back as he writes this gospel on how Jesus had dropped that hint at that time all the way back in John 6, though he did not, explicitly speak of the betrayal yet. He was dropping a hint of it there. And then on this evening in the upper room, he's already said in verse 10, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. Here's another hint. And Then John gives commentary in verse 11 after that, for he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you. Are clean. Again, not explicitly stating the betrayal yet, but another hint. And then we just saw in verse 18 that he said he doesn't speak of all of them concerning that promise in verse 17. Again, another hint. Now, at this time, Jesus becomes troubled in spirit at the moment that has arrived where he is going to explicitly reveal. To his disciples that one from among their number is going to betray him. We see an incredible display in this passage of the divine and human natures of Christ. Verse 19, we've already seen the display of his divine omniscience and declaration that he is I am. And now we see here an expression of human emotion as he becomes troubled as a man. He is experiencing real human emotion in light of the upcoming betrayal, and that he's about to communicate that to his disciples. John uses this same word "troubled" to describe Jesus' emotion when Mary was weeping over Lazarus's death. John 11:33, when Jesus therefore, saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping. He was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. And when contemplating that his hour had arrived, Jesus said in John 12, verse 27, Now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I came to this hour. Jesus experiences real human emotion appropriate for the moment. He testifies here, once again introducing a statement with truly, truly, this statement is going to be so shocking to them. He wants to emphasize the certainty of it, that they can count on this. Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. There is an Ahithophel among you. He is now explicitly made known to the disciples at this moment that one among this close circle is going to betray Jesus. In verse 22, we see the disciples' reaction. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. And Matthew says, "...being deeply grieved, they each one began to say to him, Surely not high, Lord." This says something about Jesus, and it says something about Judas as well. Regarding Jesus, even though Jesus always knew Judas is going to do this to him, he still loved him and served him like the others, to the extent that no one knew that it was Jesus. Jesus hadn't done anything that singled Judas out in that way in their minds, that he could be the one. He lived out a perfect love of enemies. We should be challenged by that. Jesus' consistency here. I want you to look with me for a moment at, at Romans 12 and just thinking about the experience of betrayal and the model that Christ sets for us. Romans 12 beginning in verse 17. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink, for in so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Is that not what we see displayed in Christ perfectly toward an enemy? He didn't return evil for evil with Judas. No, he pursued peace with him. He loved him. He served him. He leaves room, ultimately, for the wrath of God in this. He, he's kind to him, the feeding, the caring for him, the sharing with him, the loving him. He didn't return evil for evil, but he showed how we overcome evil with good. We're tempted when someone has betrayed us, when someone has been evil toward us, to feel like we're justified in, in returning some kind of action of evil toward them justified in our minds. What you have to understand there is if it's okay for you to do something back to them, it was okay for them to do the evil to you first. You're validating evil when you do it. And so when someone betrays you, it's never right to return evil for evil to them. And we see Jesus, a perfect example toward Judas, his enemy. And the same is needed in our lives as we face betrayal. We look at Christ. We see how Christ dealt with it. We see what the situation shows us of Christ and his love even to an enemy. And let that challenge us to believe what God's word says. You don't return evil for evil. You overcome evil. You stand against evil by practicing what is good in God's sight. This also says something about Judas, that he was incredibly crafty in his hypocrisy so that no one had a clue from his behavior either that he was the one. John 13, verse 23, we we pick up and see the scene unfolding here. There was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved So Simon Peter gestured to him and said to him, Tell us who it is of whom he is speaking. He, leaning back thus on Jesus' bosom, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus then answered, That is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Incredible here. The disciples still, they're trying to figure out who is this. They can't tell from Judas' life and how Jesus was treating them. They can't tell from that either. And even here, Jesus is going to dip a morsel and show a kindness to Judas, even still. Now, to help you picture what these interactions were like around the table, I want to explain a bit about the dining arrangement. So the, the Romans had adopted from the Greeks a reclining dining way of eating. They used what's called a a triclinium. It was made up of three flat couches set up in a U-shape around a table, so an open part of the table, food could be brought there, and then this U-shape around the table of flat couches, no backs on them like, like we're used to. And people would lie down on these with their head toward the table and their feet away from the table, They'd rest on their left arm, reach for food with the right arm. And so they're spread all around the table in this U, like this, laying side by side like that. And so John was to the right of Jesus. That's how he could lean back toward him to have this conversation. And it was possible to have more of a private conversation with someone when you, when you lean back in that way. So that's why Peter is motioning to John to inquired of Jesus who the betrayer is. He's right next to him there. He can lean back and ask this question. So Peter's... <laughs> Come on, John. <laughs> ask him who it is. Now, Judas was to the left of Jesus, which was considered to be the honored... the position of the honored guest. Thus, the first morsel of dipped bread was given by Jesus, the host to Judas right next to him on the other side even here Jesus is still being a faithful friend to Judas giving Judas opportunity giving him every reason to to repent and believe in the light of this great love that's been shown to him over and over and over so now in this scene them sitting around the table John Asking the question, Jesus explaining how he's going to show him who it is. We realize that John comes to know who the betrayer is. And he will remember all these details with the help of the Spirit. And will write them down in this book that we're reading now. So, Jesus had prepared the disciples for this news of the betrayal, verses 18 and through 20. And then he revealed that news to them that one from among their number was going to betray him in verses 21 through 26. Finally, Jesus dismisses the betrayer. Jesus dismisses the betrayer. Verses 27 through 30. After the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Therefore Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. Now no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. For some were supposing because Judas had the money box that Jesus was saying to him, Buy the things we have need of for the feast, or else that he should give something to the poor. Satan makes his move after Jesus makes this kind gesture of honor toward Judas. It's as though Judas responds to the humble displays of Jesus' love by hardening his heart in increasing measure. This had been going on for some time. Judas had probably wanted to follow Jesus because he was seeking greatness like the others. He was probably jockeying for a top position in the kingdom. But Jesus is turning out to be different than what Judas was expecting. Judas seemed somewhat content for a time stealing from the money box that he was in charge of for the group. But what seemed to finally push him over the edge in terms of deciding to betray Christ was when Mary poured that perfume of pure nard on Jesus and worshipped him. Let's look there the beginning of John chapter 12. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving. But Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? Now he said this, not because he was concerned about the poor, But because he was a thief, and as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Therefore, Jesus said, let her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Interestingly, this is the first recorded statement of Judas in terms of chronology of the unfolding narrative within the gospel accounts. First time you see something said by Judas. He's talking about 300 denarii, his, his love for money. 300 denarii was about a year's wages for the average laborer. Jesus did not care about the poor. He wanted the money for himself. In Matthew's account, Matthew says the disciples were indignant about this. And so... Uh, what we understand, indignant about the scene, that is. Evidently, Judas's statement was, was, his deceitful comment was so convincing about this perfume being sold for the poor that he got the other disciples joining in in this complaint. That's why, in our passage in John 13, one of the reasons that they thought Judas might have left to, to go give alms to the poor is they're they're convinced by his. Deceitful spiritualizing of his complaint and and, and his perception about where his values are. Interestingly, thinking about Matthew's account a bit more, right after Matthew talks about what happens here with the worship, with the nard, right after that, Matthew reports that that's when Judas goes to the chief priests to broker a deal with them to betray Jesus. It pushed him over the edge. The worship of Jesus with the expensive perfume had crossed ways with Judas's love of money and the event infuriated Judas against Jesus. Jesus had cost him too much. And he would continue to harden his heart against every loving gesture that Christ would show him. There's an illustration Spurgeon used in another context that I believe is fitting to capture here what is happening with Judas. Spurgeon said the same sun that melts the wax hardens the mud. It's an incredible picture. The same sun that melts the wax hardens the mud. The love Christ was displaying to his disciples was melting the wax of the hearts of those who were believing in him, but it was hardening the mud of the heart of the one who would betray him. And so we see in this scene that Christ is going to give Judas the morsel that is for the honored guest to give him that seat, to show him that kindness. And Judas had hardened his heart to such an extent at this point, that, that final motion of Christ and love displayed to him, he hardens it to such an extent that it says Satan entered him. If we look back at John 13. Verse 27, After the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Judas, at this point, gave himself totally over to the devil. Satan, at this point, is continuing his endeavor to strike the sun. It's an opportune moment for him, this extreme hatred in Judas's heart, and Satan enters in and takes him to go, do what he wants to do, to betray the Christ who he felt had cost him back at that moment, the money that he wanted to sell that perfume for. In verse 30, John says, so after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately and it was night. Never again to see daylight. Never again to see the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He went off into the secrecy of the night to carry out his plan to betray Jesus with Satan having entered him. And he would end up hanging himself before the night was over. We need to be humbled by what we see unfold here with Judas. Someone who walked with Jesus. Someone who saw his miracles, who sat under his teaching Christ had been showing love to him very closely in this circle. No one had him pegged as the one. John didn't even know until Jesus says, I'm going to show you who it is. And even then, John, I don't believe, could have anticipated precisely how swift and how severe this betrayal was going to be. This downfall of Judas serves as a warning to us. Proverbs 4:23 says watch over your heart with all diligence for from it flow the springs of life. We need to watch over our hearts with all diligence. How does your heart respond to the truth of God's word? Does it appreciate the correction of God's word? Is your heart moved to love Christ more and to hate your own sin more? as you're confronted with it? Or does your heart harden when confronted with truth? Hebrews 3, verses 12 and 13 say, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You can go to church All your life, you can sit under the the teaching of God's word all your life. You can be friends with people in church all your life and yet harbor an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. And so we need to be in each other's lives, encouraging one another day after day so that we are not hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We need to submit ourselves to the accountability to one another, to be in each other's lives, encouraging each other in dealing with our sin. Now perhaps, as you reflect on the condition of your own heart, as you consider these things, perhaps you've come to realize you've never truly been reconciled to God. Perhaps you've thought that by trying to do good deeds or going to church or saying your prayers or some kind of other special works, we're going to get you into heaven. The Bible says that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and that we deserve an everlasting punishment under God's wrath for our sin against him. But God has provided the only sufficient remedy to this predicament for the sinner. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to take on a human nature like yours and mine, to live a human life, a perfect, sinless life, on behalf of his people. Even in situations like betrayal from Judas, Jesus Jesus never sins, ever. So he lived a perfect, sinless life. And then he died to pay the penalty for our sinful lives, And he rose from the dead, showing that he had defeated sin and death for his people. And so you must repent of your sin and trust solely in who Jesus is and what he has done to save you from sin and death. Believe on him today and be reconciled to God and receive the eternal life that he gives to all those who trust in him. I want us to consider for a moment the significance of Jesus telling Judas, what you do, do quickly. Because it's right after that that Judas leaves. Jesus prepared his disciples for his betrayal and he revealed to his disciples that one from among them would betray him And those actions show that he knew that the betrayal was coming. But when Jesus dismisses the betrayer, he makes it clear that he is entirely in control. He is driving the timeline here. He is dismissing the betrayer. You can now go what you're going to do and do it quickly. Jesus says in John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. Make no mistake, Jesus is a Lord. He is, I am. He was in control of this whole situation to accomplish his redemptive purposes. If you are in Christ, take heart that He is just as much in control of all of the details unfolding in your circumstances now. And know that He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. My desire for you in walking through this passage has been that your faith in Christ would be strengthened. As you see our Lord in action here, preparing his disciples for the betrayal, revealing to them that one from among them would betray him, and then dismissing the betrayer. The scripture is true. All that it says is true. All that it says will happen will happen. Jesus showed the disciples. Here's a prophecy from long ago, it's going to unfold right before your eyes. And so we should be diligent to study this word, to understand these prophecies, to understand their fulfillment. Ultimately, so that our faith can grow in this God as we look at his word, as we understand more of who he is. And we need to keep focused on our mission of the proclamation of the gospel and the making of disciples. That is what we've been sent out into the world to do. Christ was reminding his disciples of that. Even in the midst of all that's going to feel like it's crazy, things happening with this betrayal. The mission remains intact. When you're betrayed, overcome evil with good. And let the demise of Judas challenge you to not betray others to not be a fake. Watch your hearts diligently, saints. Be in each other's lives. Be thankful for that grace, to have that, to have people in your life that love you and will speak the truth to you, just like we heard in the the first hour. So important that we have a heart to receive good correction that helps us to grow. It helps us to deal and, and to not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And undergirding all of these things that that we see that we're compelled to to walk out and to live out, remember that believing Jesus is who he says he is is at the foundation of all of that. It's only through faith that all these things can be there in your life. Trust in Jesus, the great I am, the God-man, our Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a glorious display of sovereignty we see on display in your Son in these verses, willing to subject himself to betrayal and to go to the cross to save sinners like us. We are so thankful. Christ indeed had authority to lay down his life and to take it up. and He was driving all of this to accomplish his own good purposes. We marvel at your majesty, Lord. We marvel at the mercy and grace that we have been shown. And we ask that you would strengthen our trust in Christ. Help us to live lives that are consistent with being new creatures in Christ. We praise you and thank you and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.